Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 217, Jewish Live. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here doing our first official live Judaism. Actually, what I was calling it was Judaism Unbound Live Pandemic Edition. I don't know if it's if that's a good name, but that is uh, what I've been thinking Catchy about. <laughs> or something. Yeah, something. And, um, and it is the first recording of Judaism Unbound that we are doing in this weird coronavirus era where we are recording it live in front of a studio audience, so to speak, and then it's going to get turned around and put out as a podcast really quickly. Last week, we had been a lappy in conversation with me, which turned out to be a Judaism Unbound episode, but it wasn't actually intended that way initially. So it was a retrospect Judaism Unbound episode that was live. So this is the first one that is live and intentional. So before we get started, I would like to say a a couple of things, because we usually, when we do an episode where it's just Lex and me talking, that's the opportunity that we typically take to ask for support. And I'd like to do that today again, but in a slightly different way. The first thing that I want to just mention, and we're going to talk about this in the in the discussion, is that as y'all who are watching this know by definition, and those who are listening have heard us talk about it a couple of times, that about... Uh, Three weeks ago, we launched a project called Jewish Live, which was meant to be a response to the situation that we're now in due to the coronavirus and due to the physical distancing. The idea was that because we are now in a situation where uh, basically all live Jewish events, I mean, I would say not basically, all live Jewish events have been canceled, that there was a sense that what are people going to do who are looking for a Jewish thing to do? And yeah, there are all these live streaming events, of course. Every community is doing its own attempts to keep its community going. But we thought there's also an opportunity here to connect people to communities, to experiences, to organizations that they may never have had an opportunity to connect with before. And that we could accomplish that if we created a kind of a hub for live streaming Jewish experiences. And that's what we've been building with Jewish Live. It's a combination of a calendar, basically, a comprehensive calendar where you can find out about all the live streaming Jewish events that are happening and uh, live streaming services that are happening, as well as what we've been calling a digital Jewish culture festival, which is happening on our homepage and on other pages on our site, which is new live streaming content that we've been creating along with lots and lots of partners in the hope that eventually there'll be 24-7 live streaming content either directly on our site or somewhere else that we are linking you to so that any time somebody, you know, wakes up in the middle of the night, says, I really want to do something Jewish right now. And because of the sense of social isolation, I'd rather do it and and rather experience something that's actually happening right now that you can just hop on to www.jewishlife.org and you can get there. I, I think of it as a calendar that combines beaming from Star Trek, because not only do you find out when an event is, if it's now, you can just be there in just as good of a way as anybody else is there. Every Jewish podcast has uh, at least one, a minimum of one Trekkie, um, and we have our one. I am not there yet. I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point I end up becoming one, but we've got it covered. 
Yeah, but but um, but but anyway, even the non-Trekkies know what beaming is, and so I, I think it's a good uh, metaphor. But anyway, um, so I would say this one thing <laughs> yep. about what we typically start with, which is a, a request for support. And and I would say that again, both for Judaism Unbound and Jewish Live, they're part of the same project, so you don't have to make a donation to both. But what I do want to say is that for obvious reasons, it costs us more than it has been costing us to run Judaism Unbound. So I've been talking a lot about the metaphor, and we will talk about it later, of the exodus and the wilderness. And one of the really interesting things in the Torah about those early stories in the exodus and the wilderness, sometimes for what's considered good, like building the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and sometimes what's considered bad, like building the golden calf, although we long ago had a very interesting conversation with Amichai Lalavi about that. The way that these projects were undertaken in that wilderness period tended to be through massive numbers, basically everybody contributing a very small amount. The Torah talks about an earring, a trinket, you know, a golden coin or whatever. And that would be an amazing way to run a Jewish organization in any time. And it certainly would be an amazing time to run a Jewish organization here in this time. So we we would like to just put out that plea. And you can go to either www.judaismunbound.com slash donate or www.jewishlive.org slash donate to find all kinds of ways of making your small contribution, whatever we might call it in uh, biblical terminology. We're going to we're going to work on that. So now we'll just get started with the episode. So Lex, I've been thinking a lot about all kinds of ways in which the times that we live in are related to the mythic time that we have lived in, or that I guess in mythic time, you still always live in the mythic time. So what I mean is that some of our stories from the Torah, from the Talmud, are relevant in this deep way. And I should note that this is approximately four years into the podcast. So I actually, I think I was going to, maybe we should change the title. Of this. I, I was going to originally, when I was thinking about our four-year episode, I was going to call it something like a college education. You know, like we've been doing Judaism Unbound now as long as we have, we're in college. And um, when did we, when did we get accepted to college? I assume it's like high school graduation or middle school graduation. My middle school was four years too. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. Because we weren't really accepted. But in this conversation, I want to explore that to some extent. I I think we've been talking a lot about the wilderness. I think it's valuable to keep talking about that. But I wanted to note one other story from Jewish history that may or may not have a direct meaning. I'm not 100% sure what the wisdom is, but I do think it's still important to note that there's a famous story in the Talmud about the Omer, the period between Passover and Shavuot. And when we're recording this, it is just before Passover, but when we're going to be releasing this as a podcast, it will be just after the beginning of Passover. Actually, It will be on the first day of the Omer, which is a 49-day counting period between Passover and Shavuot, where the 50th day is Shavuot. Now, the Talmud talks about a, a thing that happened during one particular Omer, which was that the students of Rabbi Akiva died of a plague and stopped dying on the 33rd day, which was one of the reasons there are many reasons why we potentially have the holiday called Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. But one of those reasons in, in our lore is that that was the day in which this plague stopped. So I'm not suggesting, of course, that this plague is going to stop 
unlock by Omer or by Lagba Omer, it seems to me, and one of the things that I want to talk about is realism here. Like, it seems to me like this is going to go on for a long time and we should That's prepare for that. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't made that connection at all um, about the the 24,000 disciples of Rabbi Akiva stopping. Yeah. The, um, okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, this period, like everybody, has both hit me hard and been strange and been for us with Jewish Live, like a learning experience and a, and a weird kind of energizing. Like it's it's been a, a huge collision of emotions. I have a couple thoughts and, and we'll see which end up most coherent and where we go. Um, but I have one Jewish Live thought, or actually I have two thoughts that are going to interweave, hopefully. Okay. My overarching thought is that you said something really briefly in a passing phrase that I, I'm not sure if you'd stand by when I'm emphasizing it, but I'm going to hone in on it um, just because it was a word choice that I think is important, which is you said that all Jewish gathering, that all Jewish events or all Jewish gatherings are canceled. And you said like basically all, then you said actually all. And I think that's true. Um, Jewish gatherings certainly are and should be, and all kinds of gatherings should be canceled in this moment. And... I, I want to highlight something that I think has been great and could be better about how, how our Jewish response has been to this, which is what we've been doing with Jewish Live and what just about every organization I can think of has been doing in response to coronavirus is, okay, Judaism is so thoroughly built on collective experiences, on gathering. We are going to do our very best to do amazing digital live stream, whatever, like digital kinds of experiences so that we can still gather in some sense, even though we can't gather in the physical proximal ways that we usually do that. I use that word proximal a lot, like in proximity, because I actually think that we are gathering. Um, I, I actually like part of me struggles with the phrase physical distancing because it implies that there is no physical interaction here. I get that we're in different geographies, um, but I actually think like I, I often do a thing where I shine a flashlight light into my computer camera and like that beams light the user beaming a little different beaming um that shines light on the other people's screens like there is a level of interaction here that i think we trivialize but so for me it's not quite physical distancing but there is certainly a huge difference um but so that's one thing and i what i wanted to say is i think there's another side of this which we haven't done as good a job on there's two streams of responses that could happen one is um, okay, we're going to keep doing incredible collective experiences, gatherings, and migrate them to digital formats. Cool. Other side of that is there are individual Jewish experiences. There are Jewish experiences that all of us can have that that don't require other people. And I think I'm going to be candid. I think that especially in non-Orthodox Jewish circles, and I'm speaking as an actively non-Orthodox Jew, not as some like Orthodox critic or something, like I think we have done a really poor job at at really hammering home individual Jewish practice that can happen as you. It's not that I want everybody to to pray three times a day, but I think that there are a set of Jews, a, a large population of Jews, and this is also gendered and we don't need to like, but there there is a large population of Jews who a very regular element of their Jewish lives, prayer three times a day, has actually not been altered um, although there's certain prayers you only say when you're gathered in a group, but like you can pray by yourself. And I'm not somebody who does that, but I am somebody who, when I need to, and I've been doing this, um, I I look to individual Jewish experiences. For me, playing piano and 
Um, sometimes it's like actively Jewish songs or prayers or whatever. Sometimes it's just playing at my piano, whatever I want to. It's like an experience of spiritual immersion that for me is refracted through a Jewish lens. And I've been leaning on that here and there. And I think there's, uh, and like, look, our book club, our, our, our quarantine book club is by far our most highly attended Jewish live event so far. And look, I think part of it is, you know, we're coming together in a Zoom room to to experience an author's beautiful words about their book. But I think also outside of that, people are reading books on their own. That's mm-hmm. an individual thing. And for some reason, and I, I have ideas about what the reasons are, but like we, we're not, ampl- like organizations aren't doing as good a job being like, okay, we're going to do all the collective action, all the collective action, collective experiences online. And we're going to, here's a list of 15 different kinds of individual experiences you can have. You can read Jewish books. You can experiment with a prayer practice. You can do meditation. You could like, I don't know. I think that that reflects something about Judaism that we should really own and consider, which is it's both great that we're so collective and sometimes it's a struggle. Like, there, Christ, I look at Christianity, which through lenses of like individual salvation, um, people do feel like they sort of hone and practice and there's downsides to this too, but like they hone and practice a relationship personally with the divine, with, for them, often Jesus. Um, and I think that when we have done less of our sort of personal individual work and have leaned so thoroughly on the collective, that makes moments like this a unique challenge. Yeah, well, so, okay, first of all, I think you just bought yourself a, a piece of work product because um, I think we should have that <laughs> yep. page on our site because yeah. um, I, lo- yeah. I love that. I think you're absolutely right. And um, and I-, I thought you were going to go in a different direction because I thought you were going to say that I was wrong in saying that all Jewish gatherings were canceled because there were already a lot of digital Jewish gatherings that were not canceled. Mm. So also true. You could yeah. have said that. And that I, w- I want to come back around to. But on the question of the individual gatherings or the individual experience of, of Judaism, you know, one of the things that we talk about on Judaism Unbound a lot is the question of Jewish institutions versus Judaism. And that a lot of people think the two are the same and equate them. And they say basically that the struggles of Jewish institutions are, by definition, the struggles of Judaism. So if Jewish institutions, synagogues aren't doing well, for example, that means Judaism isn't doing well. And we've been pushing against that for four years. Um, And I think like there was part of me that said, is it too soon to have that conversation on Judaism Unbound? You know, is it too soon to be, you know, to be doing futurism and saying like, okay, let's start thinking about the after, you know, what's the, what's Jewish life going to look like on the other side of this? But I think we can't wait. The natural impulse is to just salvage the old institutions. And if all of the attention, all of the funding, all of the time of the Jewish community goes into trying to preserve the institutions of the past that were understood to be institutions, then first of all, all of the practice that we've that that I thought you were going to call me on, all the digital practice that was already happening, first of all, it doesn't doesn't really need to be saved. It's obviously keeping going. It should be double double down invested in, but it's it's not yet. And the there's all kinds of other things that we we ought to be thinking about. The the question of the um, individuals, I think, is really one that is significant in that in that conversation, because we are so oriented to saying that the Jewish community or, or Judaism is undergoing this huge crisis right now because all of the institutions that are physical, that are that have buildings, et cetera, are in in great times of struggle. 
And it's as if that was all of the Judaism that there has been. And as you say, the individual Judaism is is harmed in the sense that, of course, there's a tragic situation. And, you know, it's harder to do. I think maybe for some people, it's harder to do that individual Judaism to keep focused on it. I've, I've, I've not, for example, my individual Judaism is often to read, to listen to audiobooks. You know, my family claims it's not reading, but I believe <laughs> it is. And, um, and I just haven't had the, the mental bandwidth to read. I want to say one thing, and I want to get you talking about it, because this is really your passion area of digital Judaism, because I wrote a piece on our blog that we launched on Jewish Live the other day, and it, again, connects to this wisdom stuff that I'm talking about, which is that early, again, early on in the Exodus story, there's this famous visit by Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, to the camp of the Israelites, and... I had always heard that story interpreted that the important thing to understand from that story is that Jethro was a non-Jew and we should learn from non-Jews too, you know, as if that that was some kind of eye-opening notion. (laughs) But um, what I didn't see until this experience was that Jethro is a man of the wilderness and that basically this entire group of city folk, slaves albeit, but city folk, people who only know how to live in a city, only know how to live in Egypt, all of a sudden find themselves in an alien environment that they don't know a lot about and that's scary, chaotic, uh, not as good in certain respects. And they're very frustrated, very, you know, Moses is not leading them very well. There's all kinds of problems that they're facing. And this man who lives in the wilderness comes and says to Moses, like, I know how to live here. Let me help you. And what I want to talk about a little bit is the digital wilderness piece where the entire Jewish community, it's like, I feel like we woke up one morning and we looked out our window and the entire Jewish community was milling about in our front yard. You know, they just had, they just, they just showed up there. And I feel, and I'm not saying this only about us, I mean, I just feel like there are a lot of people that have been out there. I talked with Denise Handlarski from SecularSynagogue.com last week about this as well, that there's so many people out there who have been doing this digital stuff for a long time and really take it seriously. And also, I think that there's a, a possibility that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, that's not what the institutions want, because they're hoping for the time when this is all going to be over and they're going to go back to the way things were. But I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I feel like what we're doing now is not um, pitching this idea of ju- digital Judaism to a Jewish world that won't listen. You know, I yeah, think what we're, we're doing, doing we're, well, everybody's <laughs> doing it. And so the question yeah. is, like, wh- how does that change the conversation? How, what do, what yeah. are people still not seeing, for example, about digital Judaism as you see it? Um, I love the Jethro point that you made. And um, for people who really want to dive deep into that, you and B'nai Lappy last week had just such a beautiful exchange about that. Um, so, A, I, I, really, I really do think there's more to praise and be happy about um, in terms of, obviously, that's not true of the world, but like in terms of how we are going about responding Jewishly to coronavirus, I feel like there's a lot of good. I feel like people are learning very quickly. Um, folks who had never entered a Zoom room until like two weeks ago are now proficient in various skills. Um, I can, by the way, I can say Zoom on a, I, I, people know what that is now. Right. I, like almost everybody, Zoom for those who who might not, is a video chat platform that has become super, super popular, not just in Jewish circles, but everywhere in the midst of this crisis. Um, part of what I want to say 
Um, digital Judaism, I talk about it in this grand monolith way, like, ah, digital Judaism, one big thing. But I, what I think we need to start doing in the midst of this crisis, since there's just so much quantity, um, and so like we need to really hone in on what are the different subsections, parts, um, modalities of digital Judaism, because it's not it's not like in the world there are 11, 15 arbitrary number of Jewish institution types, and one of them is ah the digital ones um, online. So here's what I mean: one, um, there's a huge distinction to be made between digital Judaism that is, I'm going to use the term synchronous and asynchronous. So when people are together in a space at the same time, um, having a conversation, so a Zoom gathering, um, that is a synchronous situation. Um, and there are unique capabilities and drawbacks of a synchronous situation where you come together and are in a shared digital location. The uh, Another kind is not synchronous. So we're live streaming right now, but even as we talk, even as I say this, I'm aware that there are people in the future, my future, listening. You're now, listeners, hi. Um, it's like a huge time warp situation. And that's something that happens digitally very commonly. And there's different strategies and different ways of pedagogy and of everything based on whether something is a collective experience at once versus something asynchronous. It's like the difference between gathering a class together, like gathering 15, 20 people together for a class and like writing an essay that's meant to be read by, I mean, you want more than 15 or 20 people to read the essay, but like you, you do those differently. And I think that we're not always appreciating those differences and we're just sort of Ah, digital stuff. I'm going to take my strategy. If I'm writing a Dvar Torah, I'm going to write the same Dvar Torah, the, the same, you know, commentary on this week's Torah portion, and I'm going to migrate it digitally. I think we need to consider, okay, what on a fundamental level is different here? You and I, we have virtual backgrounds behind us with our logo, um, Jewish Live. Like when I meet in collective Zoom conversations, especially recently, I've almost always been trying when I when appropriate to have a, a virtual background. That's something you can't do. You can't like just sort of carry a poster board around and put it behind you in meetings and like set a mood change. But in Zoom, you can. And I think that there's an important it's it's not just trivial. Like it serves a purpose. If if everybody is down in the dumps and you're trying to have a joyous gathering, um, Setting virtual backgrounds where, you know, you've got festive whatever behind you is a huge deal and sets a, and sets a tone shift. And I think that what I'd say about digital Judaism is we've had a good, I don't know, honeymoon period or something. We've had a good few weeks of orientation. And now we really need to say, okay, we're here now. We're, we're, col we're collected. We are gathered in a big crew um, in the digital world, I, you and I sometimes start off presentations with like, what would you do if there were 13 million P Jews that were part of one community? And what, of course, the punchline is, is like, there are 13 million Jews that have access to the internet in one form or another. So now we're here. So what, what do we need to exist? Um, what would we expect any large Jewish city to have? How many synagogues? How many JCCs? How many everythings? You know, actually, as you're talking, I, I just it's occurring to me that my synagogue 
has been doing something that I don't know how many other synagogues are doing. Um, we're doing it, our, our synagogue is doing it largely for a technical reason, which is that our cantor really thinks that the music quality on Zoom is not good enough. So she wants to do the the musical part of the services, the live streaming services on Facebook Live, because the the Facebook music sounds better. And for technical reasons, I think that now they could sort of solve it and figure out some ways. But in the first week, they didn't really know how to do the music on, uh, you know, to make the music sound good. And then the community part be, be real, because obviously the community feels more real if you're in Zoom, because you can look at the other people and you can uh, talk to the other people potentially. So what they ended up doing was splitting it so that the um, that first there's an hour of of prayer and music on Facebook Live. And then there's a, you know, they stop the Facebook Live part and say, everybody regather on Zoom for the Torah study led by the rabbi and the discussion among the community. And a lot of people, like there's a few, been some issues like, oh, I don't know where the Zoom link is. I forgot the password, you know, but, but for the most part, it's working. And it was not intended this way, I think. But as you're talking, I'm reflecting on how, you know, maybe this is kind of getting at something because I actually don't think like one of the things that you asked in a city of 13 million people, uh, do we what do we need now? We could say, well, how many synagogues would we need in a city of 13 million people? But if we're talking about 13 million digital people, you know, or people in a digital uh, city, the answer might be one. Right. The answer, it, it, you know, and, and not one, but three, four, right, whatever. But the answer is yeah. not necessarily the number that currently serve 13 million Jews, because if the service is amazing, then why do you need more than one? The answer would be because of community. I mean, I mean, there's other answers like we don't like that denomination. We don't like that. You know, that's a synagogue. I would never step foot in. OK, so you need at least two. And the one thing that I want to yeah. say, though, the way that doesn't get, and I know that you have thoughts about this as well, but what there doesn't necessarily get is that sense of intimacy, right? So we might have like thousands of people coming and eventually seeing my synagogue, Red Fate Zedek in Chicago, really great music, come and listen to it uh, live uh, or watch it live on Facebook Live on Shabbat. Um, you can, by the way, get to link to there and all of the other services from our website at Jewish Live. There's a whole set of pages about how to do that. Um, but I can imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to, on Facebook Live to participate in this service. And what they would lose is the is the chance to interact with others. So I wonder if a new digital uh, organization might be that, you know, let's say each mega synagogue that might have, you know, 10,000 people coming to the prayer service online would have a sort of a small groups approach that would say, OK, now everybody's going to be sort of assigned or choose to be in a community of 50 or fewer that is going to gather together after the singing for community building study, however that manifests, maybe it's going to manifest in different ways. And the way that we uh, create these 50 different, you know, these communities of 50 is based on shared interest, or these people like to study Torah, these people like to do something else. So I, that's where I think like when you were framing it as saying like, don't just imagine that we're going to replicate the same institutions that we had physically online, that's not necessarily right. And it's probably not right. Yeah, well, first, so the intimacy point is really important. So I'd say a couple things. One, we dressed, and I'm going to say this bluntly, 
I really think this is one of the biggest truths of Jewish life that we don't talk about enough. We overestimate the the amount of intimacy in Jewish spaces. Uh-huh. Always. Right. We think that the, that the average person, and I'm going to, the we here tends to be people that are centered in those institutions that know a lot of people in the room that have a sense of intimacy. Um, if we're, to, I mean, you were just using as an analogy, a, a Facebook live service with hundreds or thousands of people. So the, the comparison there is to a synagogue service or to a Jewish gathering or a something with hundreds or thousands of people. If we went around and talked to every person in that room, so let's take high holiday services, which are the easy, that, that's what I think of when I think of a gathering that big. And it's not that every high holiday service is that large and it's not, there's no other events the whole year that have that many people, but that's like the prototypical example. I know because I've talked to lots of people and sometimes even people that you think feel welcomed and centered. I know those people don't actually feel that intimacy. They go, they feel bored. The high holidays are like, a, they're almost like Hebrew school in the way that people almost take for granted that they're not that good an experience. And and you have to push back and you have to say, well, there actually are some good high holiday ex- experiences. I think the reality is if you're looking for intimacy in a room of 800 people or 1,200 people, and that's true digitally or on the ground, that is less likely to happen. Um, that's not a problem of digital. That's a problem of a space where you've got a few people at the front and hundreds upon hundreds staring towards the front. And the front on digital modalities is whatever the screen is. The front in a room is the front. Um, so to me, we we conflate issues that are that are universal with issues that are digital because we're only noticing the downsides of of the digital. So like if I go to a Zoom service, I've been to these, many of these, that's 12 people or 14 people gathered for the purpose of helping someone mark Kaddish. Um, This is something that I've been to many times because it's sort of what people feel that need of all the prayer needs. I think the one of the most common needs, even for people who don't pray that much, is when they want to mark Kaddish, um, when they want to mourn. And so digitally, whatever you sort of need the most is often what you create, necessity, the mother of invention, all that stuff. And I will tell you, there I've been in plenty of Zoom rooms with tears, with deep emotion. Um, often, I will be honest, those have been Zoom rooms with people in them that have met each other on the ground before. Um, I don't think that's a criticism, by the way. I think the inverse is also true. When you first meet people online and then you meet in person, there is often a deep intimacy there as well. We just have to actually try to do that. Um, But I often struggle because it feels to me like we're saying a bunch of stuff doesn't work without trying. If if you dropped a synagogue out of nowhere and had a pop-up service once every few months and random people came and you didn't do like small community building like you were talking about with the sm- with the intimate groups there wouldn't be a sense of intimacy there is a sense of intimacy because you build over a long period of time and you really work and you create a shared space and people grow to love each other and grow to support each other if you make three zoom services spaced out a month apart and you and different people go each time or like of course that's not like that's not a problem with Zoom. That's a pro- like you we didn't do the basic things that are likely to lead to intimacy. But what I haven't seen is so much like we're going to set up a new space that isn't a congregational space and it's people who haven't met each other but we're going to build that sense of of community, that sense of support, that sense of mutual 
uh, I don't know, mutual helpfulness, assistance. Like we can do that. Um, and I think we will. I, 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 we're still so early in this process. I'm not saying this with like a raised fist at our, at the world, but, um, we, we, we have to be ready to say that that's possible. And by the way, there was an article a few years ago about, um, a conversion that happened digitally that like caused lots of controversy. I feel like the, the level of controversy with all these uh-huh. things is much lower. Right. And I, I hope that that sustains. I think it will sustain. Right. Um, no, that's fascinating. I just want to emphasize that because right a, a year or two ago, right, there was a, a digital, like somebody converted to Judaism digitally, like the rabbis gathered digitally to do the conversion and everything. And it was like, first of all, it was a news story. And second of all, it was like, there was negativity about it. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. like, I don't know what people are doing now, but I mean, it's, it's like obvious that of course, like people are going to be doing that now. Yeah. And it's like, well, then what, let's go back two years ago. Like, wh- why was it yeah. so bad then? Yeah. Well, that. by the way, that links to something you said before about futurism. You said like uh, you said you were nervous about doing futurism so quickly. And I, I had a thought yesterday. I haven't you and I haven't talked about this yet. I, I, I hope it's good. I think it's good. Um, the Talmud, I'm flashing to the Talmud now. And even in the Mishnah, the first part of the of the Talmud um, eventually. But um, there's all of these wild cases. So the the way the Talmud tends to work is it doesn't say, ah, here's the rule. Here's a rule. And then we're going to give you examples. It starts with sort of random examples of stuff that happened in the world. And then from those random examples, it creates rules. Um, It's inductive as opposed to deductive. I, I can only speculate about how the Talmud's cases got in there, but there's like really weird stuff. It's like, ah, in a time, like, can an elephant's body be a wall of a sukkah? Like, who thought to ask that question? Like, to me, there was clearly some something going on where there was an elephant on the side of, uh, like, uh, on the side of a sukkah, or maybe it didn't even happen quite that way, but somebody, something happened that made such a question arise. And they're like, ah, this is the perfect chance to get to some kind of legal principle because it's so freaking weird. Like we have this bizarre situation and actually the bizarre situations help us clarify our values. It's not that they are are totally separate. Like what we find out about ourselves in those moments that are so wild and bizarre. So now we've got a case in the section about Sukkot, about the, the festival in the fall, when we're in the midst of figuring out how many walls you're supposed to have, what can, what can the formations be? We flash to an elephant. Like what? And so right now I'm picturing we should be considering what are, what are our elephants? Like what, so like we're going to create some cases that are like, you have no access to any human beings. You can't gather more than three or four people. I mean, in Rhode Island, you're, there's a rule from the governor that you can't gather five or more people. I think in most states that is now the case. Um, certainly 20 or like certainly all the case, all the states are at least like 10 or 20 are forbidden. And like, we're, if we were writing a Talmud right now, we would have a bunch of stuff about like, you have no access to people. In 500 years, we'd look at that and be like, what are they even talking? Like, why? Like, there's people around. We can do like, why do we even need to go there? But it's because we do need to go there. Um, and so I think the futurism is explicitly necessary right now, even as it feels wonky to do so, because this is when we find out about ourselves. This is what we can use to figure out what do we actually stand for. I want to make a connection between the Mishnah and the book of Leviticus, 
which we actually happened to be reading in the Torah reading cycle this year. And I hadn't made that connection before because i sort of fond of the Mishnah and not fond of the book of Leviticus, because the book of Leviticus is full of these rules and regulations that seem so alien to us. They're about making the sacrifices and the different kinds of sacrifices and the way that the priests should be and the way that the priests are cared for and everything. And usually, I think when we look at the book of Leviticus, we say, ah, that was a Judaism from long ago. And it's sort of a time capsule. Why do we still read it on Shabbat? I mean, that's kind of a question, you know, that people ask. But like, you know, it's like it's thought of in, in retrospect, as opposed to in prospect, which is that saying that the book of Leviticus was equally alien, or what was talked about in the book of Leviticus was equally alien to the people at that time. It was a new Judaism that they were being told about for the first time. It was not the Judaism that they had been practicing in Egypt. And so I really think it's interesting. And the Mishnah is kind of clearly that. The Mishnah is the new Judaism that was derived after the destruction of the Second Temple. So so they're both, they really, what the book of Leviticus and the Mishnah really are, are these early declarations of the kind of content of the new Judaism. And in a way, I think we're in the process, or we might be in the process, of the early days of the construction of the next book. And we're still yeah. in this mindset of saying, as is natural, well, what was it like back in Egypt? Or what was it like when we had the temple? And by the way, the Talmud is full of that. So it's not even like the Talmud yeah. stopped doing that or or the, the Torah stopped doing that. But there was also this other stream of, you know, well, what's it going to be like going forward? So maybe we should think about the book of Leviticus, ironically, as futurism. First up, I took a class called Learning to Love Leviticus um, in rabbinical school. And A, I, I was predisposed to like Leviticus, actually. I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I don't like animal sacrifices. There's a ton of animal sacrifices in Leviticus. In Leviticus, I still, I love the book. I think it is honest. I think it is beautiful. I think it's it's built on a kind of reasoning that's hard for us, like, modernists or postmodernists. It's like, it's very... It's very tangible and meaning is found in like objects and stuff and processes and rituals um, in a way that that I think is still true. But we pretend we're like more sophisticated or abstract. Um, the other thing that's in Leviticus, Dan, you know, it's in Leviticus, right. the, the Torah portion called Bahar, which is where the sabbatical cycle is found, the, the cycle of seven years where the land gets a Sabbath and and here's the segue, the Jubilee. So. There, in that section of Leviticus, towards um, where, as we record this, we're not there yet, but we will be in a few weeks, um, it lays out the rules and regulations around the seven-year cycle and the 49-slash-50-year cycle of the Jubilee. And I bring that up for a few reasons. One, um, I'm super into the Book of Jubilees, and you're going to hear more about that in a conversation with Barbara Tita that we we actually had already, but is not released to the world yet. Um and I also bring it up because, uh, to, to go full circle for a second, um, at the top I talked about individual experiences and we also mentioned the counting of the Omer briefly. Um, the counting of the Omer is another 49 slash 50 process. Um, you count 49 days from Passover to Shavuot. And I, I bring it up because it can be an individual experience. At the top, I talked about how we need to sort of flex that individual Jewish experience muscle. And each of us, in addition to figuring out how we're going to participate in wonderful collective live streaming Jewish things, also try and practice individual connection to Judaism. The Omer is a perfect test. Like, can each of us more deeply lean into that ritual in, in one way or another in a moment where we where we can't do all sorts of other kinds of rituals? So 
all you, all it is on paper is saying a blessing and like counting a number. You count up to to Shavuot. You count up all the days. But I think it can be much more than that. And and there's lots of and and we're going to be featuring, by the way, various different explorations of the Omer. Um, for me, one thing I'm trying to do as an individual Jewish practice is sort of note what I can find in in num in Jewish numbers. Um, Passover has all its fours and its tens, the commandments and the plagues. The fours are the questions and the children and the um, cups of wine. Like numbers aren't trivial. Leviticus also knows that, by the way. Um, and so I think that what we can do right now is is lean into whether it's in Leviticus, because that's what we're reading, whether it's in this counting of the Omer period, um, whatever it is, we can seek out the new meaning-making modality that's going to work for us in this moment. And what the key, and then I'll stop ranting, the key is that we recognize that it's not just for this moment. We're not doing this just because we're in an outlier year and we have to, and this is true, it is an outlier year, but like we're not doing this just because, okay, we've got a one-year veer from our path and then we're going to go back. What we have to realize is it could be that, but this could be a one-year veer that serves a deeply constructive purpose in helping us to reconstruct or renew or reform, choose your movement name, Judaism, um, redesign, reimagine, all of these re's. And I, I, once again, it's like what I said before with the intimacy piece. Like, if we try, I actually think we will succeed. I've had, whenever I sit down with people and have a brainstorm that's like, okay, not starting from a place of... Zoom Passover seders are so sad. I mean, they are sad in many ways. But like starting from a place of, okay, we've got a Zoom Passover seder. What are we going to do? Like, let's break down the parts. I I've, I'm yet to have a brainstorm session that doesn't yield some really cool idea. We just have to actually have them. Um, so my, my hope and to some extent, I'd even say my prayer is that we actually take a second and think, what can this moment charge us with, enliven us with, that is not just for this moment, that is for the future. And that at, at one at one point in the future, we'll say the famous words in the Shehekianu that say, who gives us life, who causes us to endure, um, God who causes us to endure whatever, um, and brings us to this time. So my thought is, what do we do now that eventually we're going to be thanking, we're going to be saying words of thanks for in 100 years or 200 years? I think we've got an opportunity to do that. Yeah, so I want to just in as we get to the close here, I want to sort of talk about a couple of things. First of all, as you're talking about Passover, I'm realizing that we're recording this right before Passover, but people are listening to it right after the second Seder, if they're listening to yeah. it on Friday. And I guess one thing I just want to say is like, how'd it go? Um, we'd love to hear <laughs> from you about like anything that went well. I mean, also anything that didn't go well, but was there anything that that went especially well, anything that was especially new, anything that not only worked well this year in terms of making this year, like you were saying, like less sad, uh, but but maybe something that you're saying, hey, we want to do this again next year, uh, even though hopefully we're going to be back to our normal gathering for Seder. So so that's just something that, that uh, I'm really curious about in, in terms of what people's experiences have been. And if you think it really went well and you want to share something with the world, you know, potentially let us know. Maybe we can have a conversation on it on Jewish Live, because I think it would be really valuable to make a record of, of some of that. That. On that score, I wanted to mention something about back to the streaming services, only in that I 
was because I said earlier that I uh, am not really a, a person who likes going to services. And yet I've really been enjoying listening and watching all these streaming services because like I've been the person who's been like making them go live on the Jew Jewish Live Facebook group when they're happening. So I've been like popping in and out of all these services. And like I said earlier, I've actually been enjoying my synagogue service in a way that I don't generally. And that's no knock on the synagogue service. It's very wonderful. But I don't like services. And I always bring a book and it just isn't something that I, I like. And I think that if you would have asked me a month ago, I would have said, like, I don't connect spiritually. I don't, uh, you know, I just I don't believe in praying, you know, any of that stuff. And all of that is true. And um, and yet the music is lovely and, and and I'm enjoying sort of watching it from a distance in a way. It's almost like, you know, and, and, and that kind of participation is kind of, I think, poo-pooed in the real world. You know, like people say, oh, like, you know, because you can imagine, like, what if I said, I want to I wanna come to the synagogue, but I want to stand behind a one-way mirror and, um, <laughs> and, and, and watch the service. That would be considered very yeah. negative. And that would say, oh, you're not being part of the community, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that there's still people thinking that it's kind of wrong to be going around my house, you know, making my coffee while the service is happening, which is what I'm doing. And yet I'm really, really not only enjoying it, it's not just like I'm watching a show, I'm getting some sense of spiritual uplift from it. Meaning like, why is that wrong? And again, I don't necessarily think the people leading my synagogue yeah. think it's wrong, but I know that a lot of people would think it's wrong. I should be attentive. I should be giving it my full attention. And I get, I get that from the traditional point of view. And what if you what you think you're doing is praying to God, then you should give it your full attention, probably. But I don't think that's what we're doing. You know, that's not what I'm doing. And nevertheless, I'm getting spiritual sustenance from it. When we think about your typical synagogue service, like you were saying earlier about like that people aren't really necessarily getting a sense of intimacy from high holiday services and your typical Shabbat service, people are there for a million different reasons. I was doing a synagogue uh, a synagogue innovation program and we had the rabbis go out and interview the congregants that come regularly and ask them why they came and, you know, kind of do some interviewing there. And one of the rabbis came back to me and he said, I was really shocked. You know, there was this whole joke that Goldstein goes to talk to God and I go to talk to Goldstein, he's like, pretty much everybody there is, talk, is there to talk to Goldstein, you know, meaning that he thought that people were there to pray and they're not there to pray, or at least a lot of them aren't. And so I guess that what I'm saying is that I would be looking for a Judaism moving forward, for example, that might have Shabbat services of some kind that I would actually attend. And I wouldn't have said that a month ago, right? And and that, but that would have to be a very new form of Shabbat services, one where the content is a little different and the expectations are a little different. And it turns out, right, that, and maybe this like ties the idea together that you brought at the beginning about the individual Judaism, right? It turns out that what I'm looking for is a more individual kind of Jewish experience, but it's not solely individual. It's involved with a collective, but it's it's one where like, I don't have to sit there in a room quietly, you know, where where there's an expected way to behave, where even reading a book is considered a little bit out there, you know, but it's okay because it's quiet. And making coffee would certainly be out. You know, I, that's not for me, you know, but something is for me, it turns out, right? Even with some of those practices. And what I'm saying is that I'm not going back when this is over, right? Meaning like, that doesn't mean I'm never going to show up in the synagogue, but I mean, I'm not going back spiritually. I'm going forward. And, and, and I was there already before this. Everybody knows that. I mean, that I was trying to, you know, get it, go in some different direction. But what I'm saying is that I suspect 
that a lot of people are having amazing, awesome, good experiences during this period and aren't going to go back in the same way either. And I think that's something that we're going to want to pick up as we continue this this podcast, especially during this uh, period, is to do that futurism and to say, well, what might it look like on the other end of this? That might mean we have way fewer Jewish institutions. And a lot of people are saying that's tragic. A lot of people are saying a lot of foundations are out there trying to help save these brick and mortar institutions that are that are out there. And that's good and understandable. And I know why they're doing it. And I'm not against it. But I'm also saying that I think on the other end of this, those institutions are actually not going to have the 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 demand that they had before because a lot of other people are going to be moving forward somewhere else and what i'm worried about is that the people like me who want to move forward we're not going to have the supply those institutions are not going to have the demand but we're not going to have the supply because all the people doing the wonderful digital stuff right now that is enriching my jewish life and that of so many others like like me and like you i think like this is the best time of my life ever to be Jewish. And I'm and I'm really worried about the loss that comes on the other end of this. And so I'm I'm also really worried about the possibility of helping build what comes on the other end of this because I don't want to lose it. I am opt- I am actually reasonably optimistic on that front. We should we should talk more about that cuz I I do expect and anticipate that places that we're not regularly offering digital things even after this will realize for a variety of reasons that they need to. And more than that, um, we didn't say this directly. I want to I wanna hammer this home. It's not only for folks like me and Dan who just love digital experiences in many ways that this is important. There are also people who physically are unable to access Jewish institutions, whether it's because they have access issues with disabilities, whether it's that they don't have any Jewish institutions near them. This is like a tangible, real issue for a huge number of Jews that has always been there. It is not new for them. Um, and and I've actually I've heard some from some people who are who are disabled that they love what's happening right now and they feel like they're able to access more, but they're also kind of upset that that it took this for people to have any sort of interest in pathways to Jewish engagement that they can participate in. And so I want to close a little bit with that and then not to be totally on a sour note, turn to Jewish Live, which we're going to plug here at the end, um, which we're trying to shape into a resource that that serves all of these different needs. So um, we, we discussed this earlier. It has really been about live streaming Jewish experiences thus far, although also some resources that we're offering on the jewishlive.org website. We hope that you'll we hope that you'll participate and that you'll check things out and that you'll share with your friends. You can do so at jewishlive.org. Also in our Facebook group called Jewish Live Connect. Um, that's Jewish Live, one word, and then connect a separate word. As Dan said at the top, whatever support that you can send our way is just deeply appreciated at this time. And we mean that both financially, if you're able, um, through judaismunbound.com slash donate or jewishlive.org slash donate. And just I don't know the right word, emotional, psychological support. We've been getting beautiful emails and Facebook messages from folks just saying that this means something right now. I'll be honest with you. I've needed those so badly. I haven't felt it every moment. It's hard to know if what we're doing really reaches people. We can see the numbers on the screen that say however many hundred folks are going to X. But like to receive a message that says, you know, that event really 
came to me at a moment where I needed to gather with folks and it served that role. What you're creating, like, like it's, it's been the world. It's been the world. We're, like, even as we're creating this stuff, we're wrestling with our own emotions and this terrifying time. And so that kind of support is deeply appreciated. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. You can be in touch with us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. But we hope that this episode has been a meaningful one for you. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>